Well, good morning, NBC Church family. Good to be with you. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're so excited to start our new series going through the life of David. Uh, no, this has nothing to do with my personal life, though my name is David, and I was named after King David in the Bible, Dawid. Uh, the Hebrew name for David is something I've known for a long time. We're so excited to dive into this book together. I don't know why, but this week I've been thinking a lot about monarchies. Haven't you? Have you watched your news lately? I've been thinking about the, the reigning uh, uh, rulers throughout history, and all my life it's always been Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth for the last, uh, you know, 70 years she's been on the throne. And so as we're thinking about that, uh, think about someone who reigned 3,000 years ago for one of the most uh, famous monarchies in the history of mankind, King David. Uh, This took place uh, around the year 1000 AD. It's an incredible story. It's really a story of a monarchy, uh, but it started out uh, with a story about a shepherd boy, a shepherd boy who becomes a king. David was a mighty warrior, a powerful ruler, a man in covenant relationship with God, but most importantly, a man who loved God with all of his heart. Carl Sandburg once wrote, a tree is best measured when it's down. A tree is best measured when it's down. Psalm 78 provides a measuring stick for the life of David after he had already passed. The last three verses Uh, Show us what kind of ruler David was. Take a look with me at Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72. The writer says, He, meaning God, chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Look carefully at those three verses. You'll notice that those three verses span 70 years. Verse 70, God chose David. This happened around 17 years old or so. That's when he took him from the sheepfolds, and that's when he slew the great giant Goliath. Verse 71, at age 30, he becomes king. He takes the throne. And then verse 72, he reigns for 40 years from ages 30 all the way to age 70. Chuck Swindoll said, the life of David is kind of like the roof of a house, and this is how you can think about it. For the first part of his life, David rises and never knows any sort of defeat. No measurable failure is detected. However, years after he was chosen as king, his heart would stray and his life would tragically spiral downward toward a bittersweet ending. Everything changes really in this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's the hinge, there's the pivot, there's the moment, there's where everything turns uh, uh, to a grievous kind of tragic ending. For the first 30 years of his life, there was triumph. But for the last 20 years, there was tragedy. The first part of David's life is a model for us of character and integrity The last part of David's life is a downhill slide in which David dies a broken man with a broken heart. In the coming weeks, we're going to dig into the details and these stories that have such practical, practical lessons for all of us. We'll talk about how to handle incredible obstacles and enemies in our lives, even when we're uh, fearful, even when we're outnumbered and outgunned and outmanned. David will remind us to pray prayers like this in Psalm 25, where he said this, In you, Lord God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. I wonder if there's anybody here today who's had a moment in your life where you'd have had to have a a prayer kind of like that one. Maybe you're here right now in your life. Uh, David wrote many, many of our 
Psalms, and we'll look at them throughout this series as well. Some of them specifically tell us exactly where David was when he wrote these words, and so we'll talk about those. We'll talk about how to handle significant leadership challenges, including troubles that arise from the inside and from the outside. We'll talk about the importance of prioritizing our homes over and against our careers and our professional lives. And we'll talk about where we can all find our hope when everything seems lost and everything seems to have turned against us. There are many, many lessons here in the life of David for us today. We're so very excited. Today will be an overview in this sermon series, an overview of the life of David. It's kind of a flyover. It's kind of a macro level, a panorama approach to today's message. And I want to look at three different topics. First, I want to look at the success of David. Then I want to look at the failure of David. And then I want to look at the son of David. So that's where we're headed today. Why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help? God, we come to you now committing this morning's message to you, committing this series to you, knowing that these Timeless lessons are here to teach us today right where we live, so thank you for preserving this text. Would you now allow these words to leap off the page and show us how they're relevant to our lives and our obstacles and our concerns right now? Would you teach us, Lord, for we need you, and as your servant says at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we invite you to speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could set up the story of David, it's important that we understand that this is found mostly in the books of First and Second Samuel. That was originally one book. As I said, it takes place around 1000 BC. It's named after Samuel. He's one of the first characters that we meet in the books of First and Second Samuel. He probably wrote much of the first portion of the story that we have in First and Second Samuel. The book of First Samuel. Uh, kind of starts off at the end of a period that we call the time of the judges uh, of Israel. Do you remember that time? It was kind of a chaotic time in the nation of Israel. It was a loose confederacy. They didn't have a kingdom yet. And there's this one verse that ends the book of Judges that kind of summarizes what it was like in that time. It says this in chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so during this time period, there's chaos, and there's a worsening pattern of sin and failed leadership. Old Testament scholar David Gooding says it this way, quote, each time the people sinned against the Lord, they went deeper into sin and into worse trouble than they had before until they went beyond recovery. And so Israel is at this point in their history where they need a leader. They need a king. And that leads us to talk about why we titled the series the way we titled it. We need a king after God's heart. Now, what does that mean? The the term after God's heart means to be like-minded with God. It means to be patterned after God. It means to be in the image of God. It means to be after God. See, our God is, is a powerful king. Our God sits on a throne above all, and our God rules in the heavens. And yet our God, despite all of his power, is very different than any other king or queen. Our God is unique. In fact, our God uses his power very differently than any world ruler ever used their power. In the book of 1 Samuel, the very first character we meet is Samuel's mother. Uh, This is a woman named Hannah, who goes to the Lord because she's desperate, she's heartbroken, she wants to have a family, she wants to have children, and she is barren, and she prays before the Lord, and the Lord grants her request, and she gives birth to her son Samuel, 
uh, from whom the book is named, and she sings this song of praise that kind of starts the book of 1 Samuel. And it's really a prophecy about God's promises, not just to her, but also a prophecy about this coming ruler, about this coming king. Uh, Look with me, not at the whole poem that she writes, but at at a small portion of it. Here's what Hannah says. Uh, She says, "He, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the prophecy. The word anointed there is the word Messiah, or our New Testament uses the word Christ. So do you see what Hannah is saying here? Do you see the vision that Hannah gets about this coming ruler, about this coming king? Hannah gets a vision about this Messiah, this king, that would use his power the same way that God uses his power. This king would lead by serving those who are marginalized. This king would lead by helping those who are weak, by lifting up those who are helpless. This would be a king after God's heart. But there's a big problem. See, in the first part of the book of 1 Samuel, the Israelites are desperate for a ruler, and they decide to nominate and select a person named King Saul. King Saul is selected largely because he's head and shoulders above the rest. And when Saul becomes king, he was the people's choice. He was physically imposing, and they found that to be desirable. And we are kind of like them in some ways. We still, as human beings, we think this way. We evaluate someone based on the externals. But God is most concerned not about the externals. He's concerned about the internals. In fact, what we're going to learn in this series is that God will even take the weak things of this world and use them for his purposes and his glory. We'll see that again and again in David's life. But nonetheless, at the beginning, Saul is chosen, and Saul is an utter failure. And I don't have time to explain the whole reign of Saul, but I'll just tell you his worst moment. The The worst part of his reign happened when God commanded Saul to wipe out an evil people called the Amalekites, to wage war against them, to take no prisoners, to kill all of their livestock. But Saul did not do that. It says that Saul actually kept some of the spoils for himself. Instead of an act of justice, King Saul makes this an act of imperialism, and he accrues more power for himself, and he accrues more wealth for himself. And so Saul has turned out not to be the king, the one that Hannah had, 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 had seen the vision of. Saul turns out to be a king just like the kings of all of the other nations. And as a result, Samuel is devastated. Samuel realizes that this Saul is not the one. And, and we meet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 crying. He's weeping. And he's, he's been awake the whole night before grieving about Saul and what he has done because he turned out to be like all of the rest. And he's in such utter despair that God himself has to come and like shake Samuel out of his grief. And that's where we pick up our story today where we meet David. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. We read these words. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. See, Samuel is, is, is obviously anxious because there is a king 
on the throne. And if anybody finds out that he's going to this other person's household to anoint a different person to become king, then that's an act of insurrection. And so Samuel is nervous, but nonetheless, he decides to obey God and follow what he wants him to do. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? So Samuel arrives, as a, he's the last judge, he's also a prophet, and the people there are nervous because usually when Samuel showed up to your town, that was not good news. If Samuel showed up to your town because he was a prophet and a judge, usually God was pronouncing condemnation on that place. And so Bethlehem is in fear and trembling. They're wondering why Samuel's here. Oh dear, Samuel's here. Why have you come? Do you come in peace? Verse five, Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So Samuel's participating. Jesse and the family are willing to participate despite this being a very touchy situation. And here's what happens. Take a look. When they arrived... Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. We've been through this before, remember? But I, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called, number two, Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, so just picture the scene. Here's the whole family, seven sons, one son, two sons, three sons, four sons. They all pass by. Samuel says, no, 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 none of them. The first one's Eliab, the biggest, the strongest, the tallest. This, this mindset here, it reminds me of this scene from Braveheart. You remember that movie? William Wallace. If you've seen Braveheart, you know there's this scene where the, the army's all lined up and they're, they're ready to fight. The, and they're t- the, 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 the military soldiers, they're, they're, they're talking about these rumors about this Braveheart character. And then William Wallace actually shows up. And one of the soldiers is like, you're, you're not William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. And, and then, then, of course, you know, Mel Gibson speaks and he says, yeah, I've heard about that. And, and if he were here, he would consume the English with lightning bolts from his eyes and fireballs from his backside. Only he didn't use that word, but that's probably not appropriate here in these hallowed halls of Millington Baptist Church. But you get the idea here. This is, this is what a lot of people think like. This is a, a mistake we often make. We tend to emphasize the externals. But I want you to notice here. God's choice is often not the world's choice. Why? The people look at the outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. If you could go back to the slide before this one for a moment, let's just take a look at that verse uh, real quick again. Notice that word heart. The heart in the Bible, that's the seed of everything. That's the seed of the emotions, the will, the conscience. The heart is the place in my life from which everything else flows out of it. The heart is the the center of someone's being. And twice in the Bible, God says about David, this is a man after my own heart. That's what this series is all about. And one of the purposes of 1 and 2 Samuel originally to the people of God way back then, but also relevant to us today, 
is to show the people of God what genuine leadership actually looks like. And right away, we're challenged. We're challenged by this to make sure that we are evaluating our leaders from God's perspective, not our perspective. That applies to leadership even in the church. So here's the key principle here. When choosing his servants, the Lord gives priority to inner character, not outward appearances. When choosing his servants, the Lord gives priority to inner character, not outward appearance. We tend to be more superficial, but God desires a pure heart and rewards inner character. So can we just pause and drop anchor for a second here, church? How are we doing with this one? How are we doing with being a man after God's own heart, being a woman after God's own heart. This is such a countercultural message for us right now in our culture. You know what our world is telling us? Follow your own heart. Be patterned after your own heart. But yet God says, no, 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 I, I want you to be a man or a woman after my heart. That's my will for my people. Us, Guinness, has an interesting quote about this. It's very convicting, a little long, but worth digesting. He says this, a new evangelicalism is arriving in which therapeutic self-concern overshadows knowing God and spirituality displaces theology. Marketing triumphs over mission. Opinion polls outweigh reliance on biblical exposition. Concerns for power and relevance are more obvious than concern for piety and faithfulness. This is where we live. Millington Baptist Church, we cannot let that happen here. We have to remember the kind of leaders that God wants us to have. Just as a quick commercial, Os Guinness is actually our guest speaker for our underground sessions this November. I hope that you'll save the date for that. You can register online. It's going to be a great evening talking about where we are as a culture. Back to our story. After they parade all the way through the seven sons, they go before Samuel. It's none of them. Here's what happens. Samuel has a question. He asks Jesse, are are these all the sons that you have? Because, you know, God told me something. I'm pretty sure God told me. I'm pretty sure it's one of your sons. Is this it? And Jesse said, there's still the youngest. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, David, and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Can you imagine this moment right here? So Samuel takes his horn of oil and he pours it all over David's head, glub, 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 symbolically anointing him as God's Messiah, small m, as God's anointed king, right in the presence of all of his older brothers. And from that day on, it says the spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon David. This is how the spirit would work in the Old Testament. Sometimes the spirit would just come upon a leader for a season. And when the spirit of the Lord comes upon David, this little guy, Davy, this middle school kid, David becomes a powerful leader. He's a brilliant ruler. He's a brilliant planner. He's a brilliant manager, a brilliant organizer. David unifies an entire nation together underneath the banner of Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God of Israel. He puts down all of the idol altars and he, he, he stirs up and creates a national interest in spiritual things. 
There's, there's one verse that kind of summarizes like a panoramic view of David's reign in 2 Samuel. It says this, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he ruled for 40 years. In Hebron, he ruled Judah for seven and a half years. In Jerusalem, he ruled all Israel and Judah for 33 years. 40 years. And if you look at that map on the screen, you'll see that David expanded the boundaries of the kingdom of Israel from 6,000 to 60,000 square miles. David establishes trade routes from his nation to all the other nations of the world, which brings in wealth and resources to the land of Israel like they had never seen before. This is the golden age of the Israel's united monarchy. Now, you might be here today, and you're visiting, and you're not even a Christian, and you're welcome here. We're glad that you're here. Uh, but you might be a little skeptical about these Bible stories, and you might wonder, is this like really true, or is this kind of legendary? And if you're here today, a lot of people ask those questions, uh, but for many years, uh, people would attack these stories about David because there was a severe lack of any extra biblical evidence for David. Nothing mentioned King David that we had found archaeologically, and so people were doubting the existence of David altogether until they found this stone. In 1993, in the city of Dan, they found this mound there, a tell, which is like a heap of rubble, and they call this the Tell Dan Stele. It's a stone with some text on it. The stone is dated to, eight, eight, uh, to 830 B.C., and it's basically the account of a nearby king, not in Israel, a nearby king, and his military conquests and operations. And in this particular section there, it says that he's fighting against somebody. Guess who? The house of David. He was fighting against Israel. So one of my professors at DTS said this. He said, this puts the historical existence of David beyond doubt and furthermore shows him to be so powerful a figure that the nation was named after him. Was King David a powerful king in this area? Yes. These stories are not legends. They're true. And as we look into the ground, archaeology has been a great friend of the Christian faith We find all the right places and all the right stuff at the right time. Friends, the grass withers. The flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. You can press this book. I put together some background notes just to give you some of the historicity and other background materials on this study. It's available in the foyer. You can pick that up on your way out if you want to dig deeper into that because many of the ancient kings, cities, and places recorded in 1 and 2 Samuel have been found and verified. So, David was a mighty king over a mighty empire, and that is a lot of power to handle, especially for a man that was given to passion, which leads us to the second part of today's message, the failure of David. David was a great leader and had many wonderful characteristics, and we'll talk about some of those, but he was not a perfect leader by any stretch of the imagination. Look at, look at this one verse from 2 Samuel 5 with me for just a taste of that. It says, David took on more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he left Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to him. David was given to passion, and he had too many wives and many children with these wives. And without proper guidance, many of these children became rebellious, and many of them became prodigals. Just to give you a couple of examples, his son Amnon actually assaults his half-sister Tamar, leading to a 
murder in their own family. David does nothing about it. He gets angry, but he does nothing about it. Then Absalom deceives David and goes after his father's throne, and David again shows this sort of passivity. So this is failure number one. David became so enamored of public pursuits that he lost control of his family. David became so enamored of his public pursuits that he lost control of his family. See, King David was very aggressive at work. He was aggressive politically. He was aggressive as a monarch, but he was passive domestically, and this was his Achilles heel. And we see this in a lot of places. Here's one example from the end of David's life in 1 Kings chapter 1. It describes how he acted with another son. It says this in verse 5. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Hagith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. And look at verse 6. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? Dads, look at that verse. Never once did David rebuke his son. Now, our sons need our unconditional love as dads, and we understand that. But from time to time, we have to be willing to say hard things to our children. But David did not do that. David would not cross him. David would not discipline him. And this became a tragic mistake for David. And he was not helping his son by never disciplining him. He created a few monsters, actually, because of this behavior. He was passive. And as a result, he suffered. So here's the key principle. Dads, if you're married, you have a family, there is no pursuit in your career or in anything else that is more important than the cultivation of godliness in your own home, in your own family. So that's true back then, but man, isn't that still true today? These lessons are timeless. Failure number two, and you probably know about this one. Failure number two is this. David indulged himself with extravagant activities of passion. Leadership writer J. Oswald Sanders says, quote, David's greatest fault lay in his yielding to the passions of the flesh time after time after time. When David fought, man, he fought hard, but when he indulged himself, he showed no restraint. There's a famous ominous verse in 2 Samuel 11. Look at these infamous words. It says, when kings went out to war, when kings went out to, the war, to, the war, to war to fight in the springtime, you know the rest of the story, David did not. David stayed home. And this proved to be an infamous day in David's life leading to his sin with Bathsheba. David was unguarded in this moment. Like many, listen, like many successful men who don't know how to handle their leisure. And he fell into sin and uncontrollable lust. Only one person, Joab, sees through this. Now here's the warning. You might be here today and you're a leader. In some capacity, God has given you some influence over a business or over your family or at work or in some other setting. You have a position of leadership. And can we just warn ourselves here as we begin to study the life of David to be very careful because with great power and leadership also comes not just great responsibility, Spider-Man, I get that, but with great power and leadership also comes unique temptations that very few leaders can handle. 
Yeah, can you pass the trials and the, the failures of life? Can you get through the hard times? Many of us can. Very few of us can actually pass the test of success and good times. Will you be faithful when you're at the top? That's where David loses his grip on God. Everything's going well. And as a result, he becomes unguarded. Common pitfalls to avoid are there for all leaders, but perhaps they apply to everyone today. Uh, they, they stress this in the pastoral training at DTS. Chuck Swindoll, the chancellor there, said, watch out for these four things. He said, watch out for silver, sex, sloth, and self. Silver, the love of money, the pull of greed. Watch out for that. Sexual immorality, watch out for that. Sloth, the pull of just taking it easy. Self, that's the ultimate battle, isn't it? So key principle, if you're a leader, when it comes to leadership, no character trait needs more of your intention, needs more of your attention than genuine integrity. So how are we doing, church? Are you a man of integrity? Are you a woman of integrity? As we consider these failures of David, and there are more, but as we consider just a couple here, how are we measuring up? I mean, if this can happen to David, a man after God's own heart, are we so foolish as to think we wouldn't also be tempted to fail in these same ways? So how are we doing in these areas? Is God making you uncomfortable with conviction about any of these areas? Are there some changes needed in your life? I know there are in mine. So as we begin this study of David, can we invite the Spirit of God to do a great work inside of our hearts? Can we pray like David prayed in Psalm 139 and said, search me, O Lord. Show me what ways are not pleasing to you. And may God do a great work in this church, first starting to do a great work inside of our own hearts. See, the life of David is in the Bible, and it's, it's there for a reason. It's meant to inspire us, and it's meant to challenge us. But can I say with all due respect to David, it's also meant to disappoint us. This is why we study David. First, because it tells us about us. It tells us about his failures. And I'm so grateful that there's a record, a factual record of a man who followed God who failed in this way because it gives me hope. It, it helps me understand that this is what the people of God struggle with. And so his failures become lessons for us. His successes become lessons for us. But listen, as we study David, let's be careful not to make him the hero. Primarily, these stories of David are here to point us toward a greater hero. And this hero is David's only hope and he's our only hope as well. Listen, if these are just moral tales, if this is like Aesop's fables to you, you're not reading it right. What's the moral principle behind these stories? What's the principle behind David and Goliath? What does that mean? The bigger they are, the harder they fall? How are we supposed to understand these stories? What's the lesson in today's text? Don't judge a book by its cover. Are these just moral tales that help us live life better? Why are these stories here? See, if you read the Old Testament the wrong way, you will take it with wrong applications. If we read these stories about wonderful people of God moralistically, as if these are heroes that we have to emulate, as if it provides a model for me, then I'm going to read it in a very shallow fashion, and ultimately it will crush you because I cannot measure up, and you cannot measure up. David could not measure up to David. And so we're studying this not because David was perfect. He's not. He's messed up. But when he did mess up, here's what we do know about David. He knew what to do. He knew where to go 
with his mistakes. David chose not to cover his sin. He chose not to hide his shame. And many of the Psalms, like in Psalm 51, David is there confessing his sins before the Lord, and there he finds God's mercy, and there he finds God's forgiveness, and we can do the same. But if we read these stories just going directly from David to you, you're not reading them right. These stories are not primarily about David. They are primarily about David's God. And the good news is he's your God too. And the same God that was there for him will be here for you. And it's also about God's provision of a greater son of David. I'll get to that in a second. Again, Old Testament scholar David Gooding says this is the purpose of these two books. Quote, as we begin our study of First and Second Samuel, our first duty is to ask what part these books play in the ongoing revelation of God in the Old Testament. There is a simple answer to it. Listen, these books tell of God's provision for the government of his people. These are the books that tell us of the provision of a king provided by God and established for the good of his people. This is why these books are written. And yes, they applied back then, but they apply to us in a much more profound way today, which leads us to movement three. We've talked about the success of David. We've talked about the failure of David. But now we need to talk about the son of David. Because in 2 Samuel 7, at the height of David's success, David gets an idea. He's building all these buildings, and he's, he's accruing wealth for himself, and he's expanding the borders of Israel, and he gets an idea. And his idea is, I want to build a house for the Lord. He's in a tabernacle. He's in a tent. I can't build my house, and God is in a tent. I want to build God a house. And God, through the prophet Nathan, comes to him with an amazing prophecy and says, David, you're not going to build my house. I'm going to build your house. Look at this passage from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Wow. This is called in the Bible the Davidic Covenant. It's one of the most important passages in the whole Old Testament. It's one of the most important covenants in the Bible. God makes an unconditional promise. It's called a unilateral promise. It's not dependent upon David's faithfulness. It's just dependent upon God's own character. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. Your line is always going to be on the throne. Now, in the short view, what this means is his son Solomon is going to take over after him. And the, the dynasty of David through the line of Judah is set up and they will rule over the nation of Israel and each son will sit on that throne. But the long view of this is that we all know if we've read the Old Testament that all of the sons of David, every single king that ever sits on this throne is an utter failure. None of them bring in the prophecy of Hannah. None of them bring in the peace of the God's kingdom that he promised. None of them are God's true Messiah with the capital M. But one day, someone would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, from the house and the line of David, and he would be not just David's son, but David's Lord, the son of David par excellence, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And like David, he would reign in righteousness and justice and peace. And like David, he would be a servant leader who leverages his power for the weak and for those who are needy. And like David, he would slay God's enemies, but not just the enemies of Goliath, the enemies of sin and the devil and death. And he would cut death's head off. And this would be the great son of David, the king that we all hoped for, the king that they longed for, and the king that we long for. We, like them, need a king, a king after God's heart, and Jesus is that king. So now looking back from our perspective in the Lord Jesus Christ, we find where David really placed his hope, because this is where we need to place our hope as well. So David was a great leader, and he did love God with his heart, but he was not a perfect man. He was a failed man. So as we think about the beginning of this series, I don't want you to think about this is about David's love for God. The story of David is about God's love for David. In fact, David's name, the name Dawid in Hebrew, which is my name, the name means beloved. This is how David saw himself. In fact, he's called the beloved, by almost every character in First and Second Samuel. First, he's called beloved by his friend, Jonathan. He's called beloved by his wife, Michael. He's called beloved by all of Saul's servants. And then he's called beloved by all of Israel and Judah. David is God's beloved. And the most important person who loves him in this book is the Lord. And this is how David saw himself. And friends, if you have faith in the son of David yourself, then this is how you can see yourself too. Like David, you are God's beloved. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf, you are now God's beloved. Is that how you see yourself? Do you see yourself as God's beloved? This is all made possible because of the work of the son of David. This is the king after God's heart. This is the king we serve. I was reading about Queen Elizabeth this week, as I'm sure you were too. And she was a committed Christian, and she said, I wish that the Lord Jesus would have returned during my lifetime because I would have loved to take my crown and lay at his feet. And one day she will. And one day David will, and one day we all will, because he is the king after God's heart. So how do we get the most out of this series? Let me encourage you to dive in. We're going to be in the life of David for three months. Read the book of 1 and 2 Samuel in your own devotional time with the Lord. Read some of the Psalms of David. Dig into this material with us. I've provided some background notes that I mentioned. Read those. It'll take you about a half an hour to lay the land and see where we're headed here. We have small groups. You can join one of those that go into depth about each message, and they have discussion time about the sermon. So join one of those small groups. They're starting uh, here in the next week. Our our teenagers and and our youth group, if you're here and you're a teenager, you guys are going to go through the life of David with us this fall. So we're so excited that you'll be tracking with us too. Dive in, and let's see what lessons are here for us as a church, as we all want to follow God with our whole hearts. So can you just imagine? Can you imagine a church full of men and women and boys and girls that are really pursuing after God's heart? Let's be that church. As we prepare our hearts for communion, I'd like you to 
pray with me? And let me invite the worship team and the communion servers forward at this time. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, today we give you thanks for preserving this text from which we can draw so many different practical lessons, but also from which we can hear about our hope as well. Our hope in the greater King, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's because of him, Lord, that we can give you today our failures, just like David gave you his failures. And so we lay them at your feet today. We know that in you, we find forgiveness and mercy. As we approach the table, we do so because you have given us an invitation. The coming king has arrived and he laid down his life for us. And so, Lord, as we come, we pray like David prayed in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. We come today to the table asking you, God, to cleanse us from sin, confessing our sins before you. And we come humbly and with thanksgiving for you, our king. In Jesus' name, amen.